please, to 1 Peter chapter 2, and I'd like to begin at verse 11. I think the verses 1 to 10 that we had last Sunday morning and Sunday evening were very profitable to us because there we saw that the things that were written were not written concerning the church, the body of Christ primarily, but the people of Israel who had believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as presented to them by the Apostle Peter at Pentecost. And of course we all know that was a kingdom message because they were endowed with a kingdom commission, uh, such as what is commonly called the Great Commission. But that is a kingdom commission and not a commission of gospel reconciliation. Now here from verse 11 to 25, I would like to read it. I don't know how far we'll go, but that's all right. It, it'll give us the entire context. First Peter chapter 2 at verse 11, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme, or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God, that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the forward. For this is thankworthy of a man for a conscience toward God, endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults ye shall take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again, when he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, who his own self bear our sins and his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned to the shepherd and bishop of your souls. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to us this morning. Now in verses 11 to 16, 17 rather, verses 11 to 17, we have miscellaneous instructions. These are not instructions for the members of the body of Christ unless we see them also embodied in Pauline instructions. Remember that. And then, of course, uh, we can see how God treats both people alike un under certain conditions or for certain purposes. And therefore, we see that some of these things fit the members of the body of Christ, whereas other things do not. And we again would find what we might call the trademark of this particular book, and that is that it's written to Hebrew people who have believed the kingdom message when the Apostle Peter preached it at Pentecost. We have to remember that constantly, because that's very plainly given to us, and that's explained throughout the five chapters of First Peter, in several places, and yet when I read some of the commentaries that I've been used to reading over the past years of my ministry, uh, I noticed that all you read is the word Christian, Christian, Christian. You never hear the Jew or the Hebrew, and those are the people who, to whom the Apostle Peter is writing and for whom he writes. 
but we find that they are totally ignored, they are totally set aside, and they are trying to pawn this chapter off as Christian doctrine when it's not Christian doctrine. Now last week I told you that Jews were called Christians, of course, in 1 Peter 4 and 16, but we find that they were not Christians because they had accepted a Christian gospel or Christian ministry, but because they too, like us, have had Christ preached to them. They had Christ preached to them as king. We have Christ, Christ preached to us as savior and head of the body. And uh, so there are different purposes in the preaching of Christ. But they believed in Christ, we believed in Christ. And therefore Peter can feel free in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, 16, when he says, and if he suffer as a Christian. And uh, they were uh, Christ followers, and that's the reason why. So we want to make that clear, because a lot of people feel that Christians uh, were, uh, were people uh, who had accepted a Christian gospel in the Pentecostal message, when the Christian gospel, always remember, does not begin until the Apostle Paul, and Paul wasn't saved till about ten years later. Now we find here in 1 Peter chapter 1 or verse 1 it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These are not strange Christians. We find that these are strangers who are Hebrew believers and uh, they were believers of the, the kingdom message, of course, and they had been scattered over into these Gentile countries because of the iron heel of the Roman government. And we find that they were under the rule of Rome at this time and had been for a couple of centuries. And so he says in verse 11, Dearly beloved, I, blame, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims. So without any further uh, exchange of thought or, or care over what this particular verse means, we find that people right away say, Now this is what the church is. They are strangers and pilgrims. That's what you are. Well, there is a sense in which you are a stranger and a pilgrim in this world. A stranger is a person that's away from home, and a pilgrim is a person who's going home. And that's true of us, but that doesn't mean it's being written to us. In this particular case, we find that you can say, yes, I am a stranger in this world. I am a pilgrim because I'm on the way home. It's good for us to see ourselves that way. But may I remind you that these strangers were strangers because they belonged in the land of Palestine. Of course, Palestine is the Gentile word for the promised land. But the promised land is really the land of Judea, according to uh, Ibon, uh, Abba Ibon, who was uh, quite a historian among the Jews, and he's still on television an hour a week, an hour or two a week, in order to present uh, the, the Jewish history. And therefore, when he is writing to strangers, it's because they are living in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, and 15 countries that are men mentioned in the second chapter of the book of uh, Acts. And they are pilgrims, of course, because they are saved by grace, and they are only there for a temporary dwelling place. They don't uh, own their houses over there. Perhaps by this time they do, because after being for a couple of centuries in these countries, in order to get away from the uh, oppression of, of the Roman rule, we find that they probably did by this time buy property and so on. But always remember that these Jews themselves were divided. While they are the people of Israel, all the people of Israel have not accepted Christ as Savior. And we find that those who have are simply a remnant. They are only a small segment of all of the Jews that are living in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. 
And so we must remember that there are a few believers among them, and they are the ones that Peter is writing to, and they are strangers even among their own people, the Jews, because the Jews don't believe on Christ and want nothing to do with the message of his death, burial, and resurrection. They believe that he is an imposter, that he was of Jewish descent as far as that's concerned, that he's not the man that he is supposed to be and that Peter would like us to think he was. And therefore we find that most of these Jews in these Gentile countries were unsaved, but there were a handful, there was a remnant, a few thousand of those who had become believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they are the ones that are being addressed by the Apostle Peter. And he says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Now that's good for us too, because fleshly lusts will war against our souls. Nothing will spoil us as far as spiritual growth and development is concerned. Nothing will ruin that, that purpose of God for us than fleshly lusts that war against the soul. And there's a battle going on in believers today, and it's becoming worse and worse. We find that the, uh, that the accepted way of life today is vastly different than what God would set forth in his word, and Christians don't even dare to moralize when you talk to people about this is sin and that's sin. Well, who says it's sin? That's only in your mind that it's sin, but it's our accepted way of life and so on. And it's becoming far more difficult to try to witness to the saving grace of our Lord Jesus Christ because it's a lot of hokum to the unconverted. And it's so even with those religious people among the unconverted. Now, in verse 12, it says, Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles. Now, nowhere do you get in our, uh, in our studies uh, commenta uh, commentators today the, the breakdown of this verse in order to show that here were people living in these countries that are mentioned in, uh, in chapter 1 and verse 1. And they are Gentiles, of course, and it's necessary for them to have a good, clear uh, testimony to the saving grace of, of Christ. And uh, it is not a matter of us who are Christians living in a place uh, where there are a lot of non-Christian neighbors. Always remember this is directed to Jews who are living among Gentiles. You have to get that in your mind in order to see what Peter is talking about. And so he says, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they behold, uh, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now this is a very important thing for us to see. Now the advent of our Lord Jesus Christ, when he came into the world, according to the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke, was a day of visitation. I want you to look at that, please. The Word of God never speaks of, uh, of the presentation of the Gospel to Gentiles through the Apostle Paul's ministry. He never speaks of that as a day of visitation. And uh, visitation speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ appearing among the Hebrew people, which is necessary to see because that's part of the whole context of 1 Peter. 1 Peter, chapter, uh, going back to Luke chapter 1 and verse 68, it says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people. Now that's quite clear. He hath visited and redeemed his people. He did that when Christ came into the world as a babe. And these words were spoken at the time of his birth. When you look at verse 78 of Luke chapter 1, it says, Through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us. 
and the day spring from on high is the person of Christ, the promised Messiah. Then when you go over to chapter 7 and verse 16, chapter 7 and verse 16 of Luke, you have a mention of it again. And remember, as we read this, there is, are note references by the Apostle Paul to a day of visitation. Verse 16, And there came fear on all, and they glorified God, saying that a great prophet is risen among us, and that God hath visited his people. You see, you get a beautiful picture of that back in the book of Ruth, if I remember correctly. What was it that sent uh, Ruth and, and uh, Naomi and, uh, and uh, oh, what was the, the father and mother's name? That, that group back into the land uh, of Palestine again. It was the fact that news had come to them that God had visited his people in giving them bread. Well, that's, that's a beautiful type of what we have here in the use of the word visited and visitation. Uh, Christ is the bread of God. And in, first, and in John's Gospel, chapter 6, five times he is looked at as a different type of loaf. I am the bread of life and uh, so on. Five different types of bread. He is that to the nation of Israel. So we find those words of the book of Ruth and the background to the book of Ruth is nothing else but a picture of what God was going to do when in the day of divine visitation God would send his son to Israel and giving them bread. Alright, now when you go to chapter 15 and verse 14 of Luke, chapter 15 and verse 14, I think there's another reference there. It says, And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to... Well, that doesn't sound like it either, does it? Well, let's skip that. I'll have to check that with my <laughs> references again sometime. But uh, those three references are enough. Luke chapter 1, verse 68 and 78, and chapter 7 and verse 16, the day of visitation always represents God's attitude toward the people of Israel in sending his son. He visited his people by sending his son into the world. Now, this day of visitation in verse 12 of 1 Peter chapter 2 is also, according to the Greek word, is also a day of magisterial investigation. And that refers to the coming of Christ. You see, Christ did come. The day of visitation took place 2,000 years ago when Christ was born. That's clearly a day of visitation. But they did not know that it was the Son of God that was visiting them. They did not accept it as a, as a day of divine visitation. They took the Lord Jesus Christ, they crucified him, and then when he was presented them in the gospel of the kingdom by the apostle Peter, he was again rejected. And they underscored their hatred toward the Lord Jesus Christ by killing Stephen, by stoning him to death. And so the gospel of grace came to us through the apostle Paul, never through the apostle Peter. But it came to us through the Apostle Paul. So there we find that now God has another day coming, which will be a day of investigation, or according to this, a day of visitation. If they didn't accept the first day of visitation, he has another one for them. And therefore, his coming to them in the future is called a second coming. The first coming was a day of visitation, but it was not taken advantage of by the people of Israel. The second coming will be a day of visitation. 
but it will also be a day of investigation because he is going to sit in judgment upon the people of Israel and all those who call themselves Jews when he returns to be king among them they are not going to enter into God's uh, uh, world or God's land they will not enter into his land the promised land he's going to judge them he's going to dispose of many of those unbelievers at that time because they've been put through the test of the great Antichrist. And the Antichrist has offered them the, his, his seal, we might say, that he would uh, uh, set his seal upon their hands or upon their foreheads. And if they took that seal, that mark of the beast, they would be able to sell and to buy goods and, and so on. They would be able to carry on business and make a livelihood. And some of the Jews are not going to accept uh, the uh, seal of Satan, uh, the number 666 and so on. They are not going to accept it. And uh, therefore we find that he is writing to them, there's going to be a day of visitation coming in the future, and it would be nice that at that day of visitation that not a single Gentile would be able to get up and lie and say, you did not give me the opportunity to know anything about your Savior. You didn't uh, testify to the saving uh, grace of Christ or anything like that. And therefore he said that it's necessary for them to carry on a conduct, a type of conduct among the Gentiles, so that whereas they speak of you as evildoers, they may by your conduct regret that they have ever falsely accused you. They might find themselves out to be liars. We find in this world today, we are here for a purpose. If you're saved by the grace of God, you're saved for a purpose. And that purpose is not just to make money, not just to make a living, not just to find promotion after promotion, but it's to be a witness to the saving grace of Christ so that the unsaved might have the opportunity of knowing that 2,000 years ago Christ came into the world. He died the just for us, the unjust, that he might bring us to God. There are a lot of us whose lives and whose conduct is such that we don't dare to open our mouths and say on whose side we are on. For the simple reason our conduct would belie our testimony. And so we are depriving people in that way of having the knowledge of the fact that today is a day of grace. It is a day when God wants to save men and women by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And our conduct can keep our mouth shut and then in a coming day at the judgment seat of Christ we who are believers will have to stand before that judgment and then we will be reminded that our conduct was such that it's not worth being rewarded in that day because we never even gave a single solitary Gentile or a Jew the opportunity of knowing that they are sinners for whom Christ died. So what are you living for? What is your objective in life? What do you hope to gain in this life? A name for yourself? Some money? Some real estate? I hope not because our main objective should be to be a witness to the saving grace of Christ. This has nothing to do with the body of Christ but we can take a lesson out of it and that which is good for them ought to be applied to us because we are somewhat in the same circumstances although our calling is different than theirs. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake whether it be to the king as supreme. See they were under the rule of a king in those various countries. Uh, some Jews were under one king, some Jews were under another king, some Jews had to listen to one magistrate and other Jews had to live under another magistrate depending 
of what country they were in. And therefore all he asked them to do is submit to them. And that's what we are required to do. We are required to have a spirit of submission as long as it does not uh, infringe on our responsibilities and our duties Godward and infringe on those particular privileges that we have as believers in Christ. And then it speaks about governors or unto governors unto them that are sent by them for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness but as the servants of God. Only believers are free. There's not another free person, a person who knows freedom in the real sense of the word in all the world but those who are saved by the grace of God. But we are not to take advantage of this freedom and live maliciously. We are to take advantage of it by being his servant, especially in countries like the United States of America where we are given the freedom of speech and freedom of thought and uh, you can go anywhere practically and hand out a gospel tract or engage a person in conversation concerning the person of Christ without any fear of uh, judgment by the authorities. Now when you get into verses 18, 19, and 20 we have something that I think we ought to bring out. Throughout the epistle of Peter, do you notice that you have to rightly divide the word, otherwise you're going to get all mixed up. You cannot take a book like this and say, this is written to the church, this is all about the church. And if you read their commentaries, you would have to come to the conclusion that the Jew is not even in divine consideration. That's not fair. Why give the Jew all the things that are bad and take all the good things and say that's for the church? Well, all right, now notice in verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. For this is thankworthy. Now, this is very necessary for us to see. We've got to have a proper attitude, and they have to have a proper attitude for their, toward their employers. Some were employed by unbelieving Jews. Others were employed as domestic servants, and they were employed by fellow uh, Israelites. And some of these uh, fellow Israelites who were employing some of the poorer ones of the believers among the Israelites, the Hebrews, we find that they didn't treat these believers very well because they hated Christ, and they hated any testimony that might come from their maid or from their butler or whatever it might be or their chauffeur of some chariot that they might have in the garage. And we find that they didn't want these people to talk about Christ because they hated the idea that they believed that Christ was the Son of God and that he had literally raised from the dead as uh, they were told. And so uh, he warns them about their employment and he tells them how they are to be. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, and it's easy to be a nice uh, servant to a good and gentle uh, master, but what about the forward? Well, that's a different matter entirely. But here, I've given it to you before, a long time ago, maybe ten years ago. These two verses have two words in it that comes from a Greek word that is translated in other places, grace. And I'm going to read grace, where that word should be grace. And this might give you a little illustration of what grace is all about in your life and in mine. Verse 19, For this is grace, if a man for a conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. Isn't it a lovely, gracious attitude 
on a part of a person who is suffering at the hands of an individual who is wrongfully causing that suffering, who is falsely charging them about something, and that was the kind of an atmosphere that these people were living in. Believing Jews among unbelieving Jews, the unbelieving Jews being in the greater majority, and the uh, and altogether living in Gentile territory, so they had two kinds of enemies. These particular believing Jews did. The unbelieving Jew was their enemy, and so was the Gentile their enemy. And uh, so it says, "For this is grace, if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it if, when ye be buffeted for your fault, ye shall take it patiently? But if, when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently? This is grace with God." Those are lovely definitions of grace, don't you think? This is grace with God. If you want to know what gracious living is as a saved person, well, read these two verses and try to see how it can fit into your life. What glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your fault, ye shall take it patiently? Well, you ought to take it patiently if you got it coming to you. But if it's not coming to you, if you have no, uh, no right whatever to be treated the way you are being treated, but you take it patiently, God says that's grace. So if you want to know what grace is, there are two good verses that tell you what grace is all about. Now in verses 21, in verse 21 we have, uh, well let's look at verse 22 before we get into 21. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. The great example of these particular qualities that we are talking about in verses 18, 19, and 20 are found in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ according to these verses. And we find that uh, in looking at the Lord Jesus as a great example of these particular, uh, well, we might call them Christian qualities right now, uh, because we're in this type of an audience, of course. But in verse 22, we find that the Lord Jesus Christ, according to this verse, he made no remarks, whatever, that would call for an apology to be made by him at all. Can you imagine a man living for 33 and a half years and being treated like he was treated? And a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and never making a single solitary remark for which he would have to make an apology? Well, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. When he was reviled, he was he reviled not again. In verse 22, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. He was 100% honest in all things that he did. And so he is brought here as a proper example for these Hebrew believers. And then verse 23, we find that no measure of retaliation was ever taken by him. It says, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. That's a wonderful statement concerning him. And so we find it also uh, shows us that no demeaning uh, threats were made by him. And going back now to verse 21, it says, For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his step. Now once again may I remind you, who are the us? They are Hebrew believers, not members of the body of Christ. Now we can, uh, we can translate some of this into our experience, but remember that primarily we have to identify these people in order to know what the Apostle James is talking about. We find in verse 21, he is recommended to these Jews for emulation. 
They are to copy his way of life. And if this is the way he lived, and this is the kind of conduct we have explained to us, according to verses 22 and 23, they are expected to have the same kind of uh, conduct. And then we have a statement here that ye should follow his steps. And may I say that this is definitely an ex exhortation to Jews. I forget the author's name, but you remember there was a book written uh, a couple of decades ago, In His Steps. Now that's not a book that ought to be, uh, it ought not to be called a Christian book even. We find that when anybody gets into any problem, they are supposed to say, now what would Jesus do if, I were, if he were in my problem? That's not the way you solve problems. What Jesus did, he did as a Jew under the law 2,000 years ago before he died on the cross. And now these Jews are asked to remember how did Jesus live during those 33 and a half years. I want you to walk in his steps. Only a Jew can walk in his steps. We cannot follow his steps, but I will tell you there are steps for us to follow. So I ask the question, what about us? Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 1, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 1. There are a lot of preachers who might uh, have objection to what I am going to say are our steps, who we are to follow. We are not to follow Jesus of Nazareth, and he is the one who is brought before these people in 1 Peter chapter 2. He is the one they are to emulate, but not us. I want to show you a couple of scriptures, a few scriptures here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 1, Be ye followers of me. Who in the world has got the nerve outside of Christ to make a statement like this? The Apostle Paul. God elected him to be the apostle of the Gentiles and he gloried in his office. So he says, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Now he was a follower of Christ, not a follower of Jesus of Nazareth not a follower of the man who was a Jew and lived as a Jew and walked among Jews. God has taken that same Jesus and made him both Lord and Christ. And in his resurrection, Christ appeared to the Apostle Paul and showed Paul the kind of a conduct now for members of the body of Christ. The conduct is not to be copied by Jesus of Nazareth, but it's to be given uh, in accordance with the Christ of resurrection. We do not know as believers in Christ, as members of the body of Christ, we do not know the Christ of Galilee. We know the Christ of resurrection. Always remember that. And the Apostle Paul was the first one to walk after Christ, the Christ of resurrection. And therefore, in his epistles and in his epistles alone, you will be talked about, taught, taught rather, the conduct that you and I are to emulate in the Apostle Paul who emulated the person of Christ as the truth of this conduct of a heavenly conduct was given to Paul and then Paul through uh, to us. So he says, and you became followers of us, uh, or rather uh, be followers of me even as I also am of Christ. Now let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 6. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 6. We find it says here, And ye became followers of us. And then it says, And of the Lord. Because anybody that followed Paul and Silas and Timotheus, and they were following the Lord, so to follow Paul and Silas and Timotheus and the other apostles, 
not the Jewish apostles, but the apostles of the New Testament, they also were following the Lord. You see, to follow Paul in his conduct was to follow Christ. Because Paul made sure that he followed Christ as he received directions from the risen Christ, which no other man received. And Paul passed it on to us through his epistles. You get that? And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. And uh, I think I've still got another one here. We might turn to the book of Philippians chapter 3 and verse 17, because in the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. And I'd like to give you two or three scriptures in order to prove something that's not being preached today. You would rather have me say, you follow Jesus, because that's what Peter says. And where is there a higher man to follow than to follow Jesus? But always remember, Jesus went to the uh, uh, feast uh, of the people of Israel. He went to the temple. He was circumcised. He was baptized. He was a Jew all the way through, and he had to do everything under the law because he says, for thus to become with the righteousness of God. And therefore we find that we don't walk as Jews walked, and that's how the Lord Jesus walked. If he didn't walk as a Jew, why, no one would have ever accepted him, and he never would have died a death of propitiation on the cross because he had to be what he said he was, and that was the Son of God come in the flesh, born of Israel. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 17, and it says there, Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an example. Now that's the word I want you to see, that word example. And with that we want to remind ourselves of 1 Peter again and of chapter 2 where we got that word example. And uh, let's see, where is it? Uh, verse 21, For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example. Christ was an example to the Hebrew believers. Paul is the example to members of the body of Christ. Is that too difficult for you to understand? I've given you three scriptures now where we are told that we are to follow Paul, follow Timothy, follow Silas, and so on. And they are our example because they show us how heavenly beings are to walk in this world. And that will be a different walk than a Jewish walk who walked according to the circumstances of, of a dispensation of law. There are so many uh, wonderful trademarks, we might say, of the people of Israel. So many uh, Jewish or Israelitish signatures throughout the revelation of First Peter that shows that it belongs and it should always belong to the people of Israel first. We can make application to us as we go along. Alright, so Peter's example was the Christ of an earthly ministry and Paul's example uh, was the Christ of a heavenly ministry. We are to find in Paul our example, the Jewish believers were to find in Christ their example. I hope that's not too difficult for you to see. Because after all, this will give you a better understanding of the scripture to write to divide the word, and that's what we're here for. I'm not here to say what the ancients have been saying for 15, 16 centuries. I'm here to tell you what Paul said. And you remember the time came when, according to Paul's letter to, the, to Timothy, 
He says, all they that are in Asia have forsaken me. They forsook Paul as a man. They forsook him as an apostle. They forsook him as the only one who held the key to the right, right understanding of the word of God. He had the key to the mystery. The mystery of this dispensation of grace. And this dispensation of grace cannot be understood in its fullness unless we go to Paul. And remember that that mystery was developed uh, through the Apostle Paul by the risen Christ. Now, just for a moment or two, I would like you to look at verse 24. It says, Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. I don't have my timer working, you broke on me, so I don't know how much more time I've got. But I want to hurry and try to say this. I want you to notice it says our sins. Sins is in the plural. Our represents the people of Israel. When the Lord Jesus Christ went to the cross, we find that these saved people of the people of Israel, I want to emphasize the saved here. They knew one thing, that their sins were borne away in his body on that tree. And that's Peter's wonderful message. In this matter of verse 24, we have an explanation of what the trespass offering is. You remember back in Leviticus, you have a sin offering and a trespass offering. Well, the trespass offering shows how Christ took care of the fruit, that is, our sins, our iniquities, our transgressions. He took care of that in his own body on the tree. It's only the believer in Christ who can point away to the cross and say, He bare in his own body my sins on the tree. All the world can say, thank God for it, they can look away to Christ and say, He is really a sin offering because there he died not for the purpose of taking care of the fruit that is the sins and the iniquities and the transgressions but the root that produced all of this fruit you and I came into the world with a root a very sinful root that had to be condemned and it was condemned in Christ's death that root is sin it is a sinful nature that we contracted from our parents Every boy and girl in the world, every man, woman, and child have all been born in the world in sin and shapen in iniquity. They all came with a bad start. I don't care how angelic our little children are, how beautiful our babies are. They all came into the world with a bad start. They've got the ability to sin. David said they go astray from the day that be born. And you watch an infant if they don't pull the wool over their parents' eyes when they can't even talk or make a choice for sin. You will find that to be true. Now when Christ died as the Lamb of God, he died for what? Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away what? The sin, not sins, sin. He answered for sin as the Lamb of God for the world. But only the child of God can point to Christ and say, He is my trespass offering. He took care of my sins. He not only took care of my sin, the root, when he died on the cross as the Lamb of God, but he also took care of my sins and the sins of all of those who believe, because sins are always connected with believers. Remember that. So it says in verse 24, Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, that is, that we believers in Christ, being dead to sins, so that we are not, no longer under the dominating a rule and factor of, of that sinful Adamic nature of ours. We don't have to serve sin anymore. 
We have been saved and set free from the servitude of sin. That's Romans chapter 6, very plainly taught there. That we should not serve sins, uh, dead to sins, should live unto righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. That's a wonderful expression because the people of Israel were spiritually healed and they will be spiritually healed in the future when the Lord Jesus Christ returns to them. Verse 25, for ye were as sheep. Now Israel alone is looked at in the word of God as sheep, never the unsaved Gentile. Paul never uses the expression. Remember that. But Israel were as sheep going astray, but these saved ones are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of their souls. We are returned, as it were, to the head of the body, but they to the shepherd and bishop of their souls. You see the difference of the language to those that Peter addresses and to those that Paul would address? He doesn't use, they don't use the same language for both uh, types of people. And we thank God for it. So we want to continue. If there's something there I want to bring back to you tonight in verses 24 and 25, I'll do so. But otherwise, we'll begin the Lord willing with chapter 3 this evening. May the Lord bless his word to your hearts. If you have not as yet accepted Christ as your Savior, this is your opportunity. He died in order to answer for that terrible root that you and I were born in this world with. And that's what makes it possible for an infant when an infant dies before the infant has made a, a conscious choice for sins, for the completion of any sinful act, that child is under the blood because the blood not only takes care of sins, the fruit, but it also takes care of sin, the root. A child that is born and dies under the, in infancy in darkest Africa or China or in Russia Thank God because of the fact that Christ died as the Lamb of God for the sin of the world. They'll be in the glory while their unconverted par parents will be in hell for all eternity. Remember that. May the Lord bless his word to us this morning for his name's sake. And uh, I did say as I close with verse 24 rather hurriedly that if I thought this afternoon that there were some things that I should elaborate on when I came back this evening, then I wouldn't start with chapter 3, and that's why we're going to go back to this wonderful message concerning the death of our Lord Jesus Christ and what was accomplished in that death. You all know by this time that there are four, there are four aspects to the death of Christ on the cross. There is a burnt offering and a peace offering, a sin offering, and a trespass offering. And all of these offerings foreshadow some particular work of Christ on the cross. In the burnt offering, which you have explained in Leviticus chapter 1, we have Christ offering himself up to the glory of God his Father as though no question of sin is involved, no question of the sinner, no, no, uh, nothing to press as far as the guilty world is concerned. But God had to be glorified in the, sin where he had been, in the scene where he had been so sinned against. And only one person could do that, and that was the person of Christ. And he did it in a remarkable way by being obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And in that obedience, we find him glorifying his Father in the scene where man failed to glorify him. And then you have the peace offering, and that means that through the death of Christ on the cross, God has made it possible for us to be the recipients of the peace of God that passeth all understanding. And peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ by simply accepting Christ as our personal Savior. 
And having made peace through the blood of his cross, the book of Colossians says, written by Paul, and having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, whether they be things in heaven or things on the earth. And we thank God that it doesn't say on things under the earth because there are some people who are going so far as to say that Christ's work on the cross is going to mitigate the damages and the suffering of those who are in a lost eternity today so that eventually they will be taken out of that painful situation of punishment and be brought to enjoy the reconciliation of Christ on the cross. And that's a false teaching. Those who are in the lost eternity are lost there for all eternity. And then there is the sin offering aspect of Christ on the cross. And wherever you see sin in the singular concerning the death of Christ on the cross, you have the Lord Jesus Christ answering to God for that nature that we all have. Each one of us has been born in this world with a sinful Adamic nature, and that's what causes us to sin. We didn't become sinners when we committed the first uh, uh, sin that we decided that we were going to do contrary to uh, our better knowledge or so. It wasn't the first volitional sin that we committed that uh, caused us to become sinners. We were sinners from the very day of our birth because of the fact that our parents passed on to us a sinful nature. Now, this nature had to be considered by the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. He had to die for that sin nature which all of us possess. And therefore, the scripture says in John chapter 1, verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin, singular, of the world. So all of the world has one thing in its favor, and that is that the Lord Jesus Christ went to the cross and answered for the nature of them. They cannot help sinning because they have a sinful nature. But this is what it does. It makes it possible for people who are in this world today who know, and who have had the sin nature answered for by the Lord Jesus Christ to a holy God it gives them the possibility now to enjoy sins forgiven through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ now it's a question of sins the sin question is already settled but the sins question has to be settled by us personally by accepting Christ as our personal Savior and so there is the fourth, uh, the fourth aspect of Christ's death on the cross, and that is the trespass offering, and uh, that we have right here in verse 24. It doesn't say it's a trespass offering, but where the sins is the subject of that particular offering, and that's the object it's uh, take, being taken care of, is the object of the verse, the instruction of the verse, then you know it has to do with the trespass offering. Now, this morning I made this statement that because of the fact that our Lord Jesus Christ died in order to answer to God for the sin nature that we all have received from our parents, and we all did not choose to come into the world as sinners, but we find we came into the world regardless of that as poor sinners, and the only thing we can naturally do was to sin. And so the Lord Jesus took care of that and removed any possibility of any infant going to hell for the simple reason that infants have one thing on their side, and that is that the Lord Jesus Christ died for the sin nature of that infant and for all infants in the world and for all adults as far as that's concerned. Now when an adult dies, he goes either to heaven or to hell, dependent upon whether his sins have been removed by the blood of the cross. It has no relationship to his sin now because the Lord Jesus Christ made ample 
uh, offering and satisfaction for that when he died on the cross of Calvary. Now when we lose an infant, we don't have to worry about that infant. We don't have to worry about the infants of heathen because all infants in the world today have the same uh, blessing bestowed upon them and that is since under the age of accountability and they have never made a choice to sin and they are not held responsible to God for any particular sin that they have committed knowingly or volitionally they are too under the blood because all they have on their side uh, that's contrary to uh, the holiness of God is a sin nature but that sin nature has been taken care of by the Lord Jesus Christ who died as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. Now I hope you see that. So it's not, uh, people realize that something has to be done for infants. My mother realized that. What do you think she did? When I was about 10 days old, she took me to church and had a few drops of water placed on my head. That was going to guarantee that if I died under the age of accountability, I would go to heaven. And that suggests that those who are not christened or sprinkled or baptized in that particular fashion, that they'll not make it. Now, I know that that is involved because, you know, the Christian Reformed Church in which I was raised, they have what you call in the hollow language, heisbezuk, that means house visitation. And once every year, the preacher with two elders goes around to all of the houses that are represented in their membership, and they come around and see if you are praying three times a day at three meals, and if you are reading your Bible, if you are doing this, if you're behaving pretty well, you know. Well, my name was called off one time shortly after I was married, and uh, I had a child, and... Uh, my mother told me, she says, now, the Donnelly read your name off at church this morning, yesterday, it was on a Monday when I saw her, and I hope you're going to be man enough to be home for that visitation. It will be Thursday night at 8 o'clock. Well, she thought I would stay away because I was leaving that kind of doctrine, you see. I got saved by the grace of God after I was married, and therefore the first child that we had was a child that was uh, born after I had become saved. And now we had this house visitation, we had an infant in the family, and the first thing the preacher talked about when he came over was the fact that that little child was not baptized. Now they said if that child is not baptized and that child dies under the age of accountability, it's going to hell. Well, I don't no longer believe that sort of thing. Now, all of those who christen today, and I'm not going to mention uh, denominations, they all believe that it's going to be a sort of an umbrella. It's going to be a life insurance policy for a little child. The little child doesn't need any more life insurance policy or any more an umbrella for salvation in the future than the fact that Christ died as a sin offering. Isn't that wonderful? <clears throat> there are many parents... <clears throat> who will die in heathenism and also in the United States of America who have not accepted Christ as Savior but who have uh, uh, seen little infants die in their family and they will be eternally separated from the infants because the infant is sheltered by the blood of the cross and the parent is not sheltered because of its disobedience to the message of the blood of the cross. You don't have to do a thing. You don't sprinkle children in order to see that they are saved. All you, all you have to remember is the doctrine of redemption that's given to us in the Word. All right, now in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24, it says, Who is own self bear our sins. Now, that's plural. That's transgression, isn't it? That's iniquities. That's plural. And that's the fruit of the root. 
The root that produces that kind of fruit is the sin nature that we have. I haven't gotten rid of the sin nature, even though some years ago I was born again, saved by the grace of God, and God imparted to me a divine nature, and he imparts to every believer a divine nature. That's what makes us born again. You've heard of that expression, but a lot of people claim to be born again today when they're only church members, and you're not born again by joining church, but by becoming one with the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we accept Christ as our Savior, we are born again. Then God gives to us his nature, and that nature cannot sin. Now, if I sin tomorrow, in all probability, in some way, shape, or form, I will. Because I haven't gotten rid of the old Adamic nature. Now, the old Adamic nature is the only thing in me that causes me to sin. But the divine nature is never, never causes one to sin. It is as holy as the nature of God himself because it's his nature that he bestows upon us. And that's why we are called his children. We have his nature. We can say, Abba, Father. And we can call upon him and know that he is our father. But here it's talking about our sins. And only the believer in Christ can say with the Apostle Paul, in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7, in whom we have the forgiveness of sins, S-I-N-S. -S. And that's what God is offering today. He's offering the forgiveness of sins. He's taking care of the nature. Now he wants to take care of the fruit. And it's up to you and to me because the fruit has come out of us volitionally. We have made up our minds to do what we've done contrary to the laws and to the rules that are set forth in the word of God. We have broken down every rule and every, uh, every thing that is suggested in the word of God for good behavior and good conduct. And so we are responsible for that until we can say that through the Lord Jesus Christ we have received the forgiveness of sins. Now when we receive the forgiveness of sins, we receive the forgiveness of sin of every sin that we have ever done, of everything we're going to do, and right up until the day of our removal into heaven and into glory. Now isn't that a wonderful offer? That's really the gospel of God's grace, an offer of the forgiveness of sins. God wants to erase it all. He wants to blank it all out and give you a new beginning. And that's what salvation is all about. As I said before, we can never stop from sinning because we continue to have within us the nature that wants to sin. But we have a check on that desire to sin. And the divine nature will put a stop to the mastership of that sin uh, master in us. And we will no longer be led by it. We will no longer be dominated by it. And now we, are, we have the pleasure of being dominated and led by the Holy Spirit rather than the sinful nature. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. Now I thought this afternoon, and I've even got it on my notes that I didn't get to this morning, that I should give you the two illustrations that we have of this matter of bearing away sin. It's a wonderful thing that the Lord Jesus Christ bear away in his own body our sins on the tree. Do we have Old Testament types for it? I think the first one would be Genesis chapter 22. Would you turn there, please? Genesis chapter 22. Now, I could read uh, quite a few verses out of that 22nd chapter, but there's only one that I'm going to look at, and that's verse 6. I think I can tell you about it as an illustration of Christ bearing away our sins. This is the scene on Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah, geographically, is supposed to be the same place as Mount Calvary. 
we find that Abraham was told to take his son and offer his son as a burnt offering unto God. This is not a sin offering. It is not a trespass offering. Here is a burnt offering showing the willingness of the son to walk with his father to the place of execution. And it's the willingness of the son to do that that has made that aspect of his death a burnt offering. It says in verse 6, And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac his son, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they went both of them together. Get the picture, please. We find two people going to one particular place, and that is an altar, and it's death. And we find that in the whole life of our Lord Jesus Christ, from the cradle, we might say, to the time that he died on the cross, there were two that walked together in perfect harmony. That was the Father and the Son. No one was in more perfect harmony than God the Father and God the Son about where the Lord Jesus was going, why he came to the world, what he was to accomplish, and the offers that would be made to a sinful world based upon the accomplishment of that death. And so it says here that Abraham took the wood and laid it upon his son Isaac. Now I would like to look at that wood as a, as a picture of sin. We'll get a better picture later because this is only one out of two illustrations. But you know there is a proverb that says this, Where there is no wood, the, uh, the fire dieth out. Where there is no wood, the fire dieth out. And we find that that is true. That wood may be typical of the sin that we see Christ bearing on the cross. This wood was placed upon his shoulder. And we find that where there is no wood, there is no need for fire. And when the Lord Jesus went to the cross and he took the burden of our sin upon himself, and he put that sin away, sins away to the perfect satisfaction of a holy God, making it possible for God to offer free of charge a salvation, which meant the removal of all sins and every stain, we find then that that wood is a picture of the sins that were placed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Where there is no wood, the fire goeth out. Christ has removed all of the wood in behalf of the believer, all of our sins, so that the fire goes out as far as fire is concerned in us. We find that fire is a type of judgment. It says here in verse 6, He took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they went both of them together. That sacrifice had to be consumed by fire, and the fire speaks of judgment. When our Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross, you have in the Old Testament a beautiful picture of that in Lamentations chapter 1. We find there that uh, the Lord Jesus Christ says, From above hath he sent fire into my bones, and it prevaileth against me. The fire of divine judgment entered into our Lord Jesus Christ like a burning something that had to be consumed and had to... Uh, be thoroughly uh, consumed so that the fire would be out once and for all. Now, if you take that and translate it into our terms, what do we read in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1? There is therefore now no condemnation or judgment to them which are in Christ Jesus. The fire having gone out in the death of Christ on the cross, he having consumed all of the anger of God's wrath against our sins makes it possible for no more anger of God's wrath ever against us. Those who have accepted Christ as Savior, the fire has gone out because he has taken care of the wood that has been placed upon his shoulder. 
Now that doesn't represent the sins of the whole world. It represents the sins of those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. God knows all of those who would eventually accept Christ as Savior. Therefore, in a wonderful way, only to those who are saved by the grace of God could those words apply. Where it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, Christ died for our sins, a trespass offering according to the scriptures, and he was buried and he was raised the third day again according to the scriptures. And that hour belongs to us, not the world. He doesn't, it doesn't say anywhere in the Bible that he died for the world's sins. We know that he gave God a good answer for the sin of the world, the nature, but not the fruit of it, which is individually taken care of by our accepting Christ as our Savior. And the moment we accept him as our Savior, we can say, what a wonderful Savior. In him we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Isn't that wonderful? Sin is taken care of by all for the benefit of all of the world. But it's for us to see by our acceptance of Christ that our sins now can be removed. And how far does God remove them from us? Well, there's a passage in the Old Testament that says, As far as the east is distant from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Let me give you another illustration. Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus is, we, is a book that we often call the priest guidebook. If you want to learn about the cross, according to prophecy, you have to go to the book of Leviticus. And what a wonderful book that is. And in Leviticus chapter 16, we have two goats, and we find that one goat is the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell, and the other goat is the goat upon which the people's lot fell. Now, one goat is to be offered uh, and to die on the uh, to die uh, on uh, an altar, and the other, the live goat, is to be taken by a strong, healthy man out into the wilderness, and there he is to be left, where he will never again be seen. In these two goats, we have a picture of death and resurrection. We have one dying and the other one remaining alive. And in the two goats, we have the two sides of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross: death and resurrection. But there is one verse, and I want to show you in verse 21. And Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat, and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel, and all their transgressions, and all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat, and shall send him away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. Now isn't this a beautiful expression of the sins of God's people having been removed so far away that they can never be found again. They will never again be reckoned with by God because God is satisfied with the way the Lord Jesus Christ reckoned with him when he suffered the just for us, the unjust that he might bring us to God. You ought to get acquainted with that verse because the Lord Jesus Christ had the sins of whom? Only the people of God. The Philistines' sins were not on him. The sins of the Hippites and the Hittites, they were not placed upon him, but upon uh, the sins of God's people were answered for by the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would like to read that 21st verse again. And Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat, and shall send them away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. The goat is a beautiful type of our Lord Jesus Christ. The goat is a clean animal, and of course the Lord Jesus Christ was holy, harmless, undefiled, 
separate from sinners and eventually made higher than the heavens. Now that's what we get out of this first John chapter or first Peter chapter two. Shall we turn back to it again, please? First Peter chapter two and verse twenty-four, who his own self, and I like that expression, he didn't send an angel to do his job. No angel could our sins, uh, be, uh, no angel could remove our sins. I forget, I was thinking of a line of a song and it didn't come to me there, but no angel could our place have taken. That's what it is in the song. An angel could not die for us. Even those holy beings that are so quick and so ready to do the bidding of our Lord Jesus Christ. Angels are ministering spirits sent forth to them that shall be heirs of salvation. And we find that in spite of their holiness and in spite of the fact that they have never sinned, these holy ones, they would never make a fit sacrifice as far as God was concerned. Only his son could take that place. And that's why in Abraham, it was Abraham's son that had to be taken. And he only had one son at that time. Of course, he had Ishmael, but then Ishmael was not reckoned to be his son because he was not related to Sarah. So there was only one special son. He was specially born, specially given. He was a miraculous son because God gave it to two people who could not bear a child, both of them being too old, one of them always having been barren all of her lifetime, and God took the barrenness of Sarah, the oldness of Abraham, and set aside both obstacles and caused them to have a child. Now, wasn't that a wonderful thing? So, in a sense, he's a beautiful type of the Lord Jesus Christ who was miraculously born when conceived by the Holy Ghost and born of the Virgin Mary. To his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. Now that is a reference to an Old Testament scripture, Isaiah chapter 53, by his stripes ye were healed. The ye there is not people in general. Always remember that Peter is talking to Jewish people, Jewish believers of the Pentecostal message, which was a kingdom message, it was not the message of grace. And now he's talking to these people. Here they are scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. According to chapter 1 and verse 1, they are all Hebrews. And some of those Hebrews are saved by the grace of God. They've been born again, and they are being told how to conduct themselves in view of the fact that they have received the forgiveness of sins. All right, then in verse 25 it says, For ye were as sheep going astray. Now God never looks at us as having been sheep, having gone astray. We find that uh, we came into the world sinners. We belong to a Gentile background, and we find that the Gentile background is given to us uh, historically. In the first chapter of the book of Romans, we have nothing to brag about. We find that our forebears had every opportunity to see uh, God in his uh, marvelous Godhood and power and they rejected that witness to them and therefore we find that God gave them up in favor of raising up for himself a nation such as the nation of Israel. Now that the nation of Israel of course has turned their back upon the Lord Jesus Christ first by crucifying him and secondly in the book of Acts by their perpetual rejection or continued rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ as a risen king then God reveals that he had a mystery in his mind from before the foundation of the world, and that is that the people of Israel were not going to frustrate God's attempts to seek and to save the lost among the Gentiles. And so he picks up the apostle Paul in chapter 9, he saves him, 
and then he uh, commissions him to be the apostle to the Gentiles, giving him a gospel concerning the revelation of the mystery of this dispensation. And so our gospel is vastly different than what Peter preached in the early days back there in Pentecost, at Pentecost. Now in verse 25, again, you have a scripture concerning Israel. There are so many things here that gives us a trademark, or shall we say the signature of the people who Peter is addressing. And we like to point those things out because every book I have that's supposed to be a commentary on 1 Peter is lost in the maze of, of uh, confusion that's brought out by traditionalism and they never bring out the fact that this is written to these Hebrews and they change the context terribly so that you think that they were talking about someone else, the church, instead of about these Hebrews. But in verse 25 it says, Ye were a sheep going astray. The Apostle Paul never looks at us as having gone astray because we've never been to a place where we knew Christ as our Savior, a new God, in, in other words. Now the people of Israel do. They are the ones who have gone astray. And that's why the Lord Jesus Christ died for them on the cross. For ye were a sheep having gone astray, uh, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. It's these Hebrew people who are returned to the shepherd and bishop of their souls. Christ is not the shepherd and bishop of our souls. He is the head of the body. He is our savior. And you have to keep these things separated. Otherwise, you're going to be in a maze of trouble. And uh, you're going to find 1 Peter to uh, be a contradictory book rather than a blessing. 1 Peter is to be looked at in the same sense in which James is to be looked at in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and the book of Jude. And ultimately the book of Revelation. It all concerns the people of Israel and it concerns especially those saved ones uh, from among those people who had been to Pentecost, who had come out from these Gentile countries, coming down to hold the Feast of Pentecost, and there they heard Peter preach the message of the kingdom. They believed in the resurrection of, the, of Christ. They believed that Christ would come and set up his glorious reign among them if all of the people of Israel would take the same position. And what position was that? Repent and be baptized, and ye shall receive the remission of sins and the gift of the Holy Ghost. But they would not repent. They would not be baptized, and therefore they never got saved. Now, repent and be baptized is not the message of today. And I don't like it when traditionalists and so many fundamentalists change that around and say, well, it really says that you should repent, and if you repent, you ought to be baptized. That's hokum. Don't believe that. That's nothing else but pulling the wool over your eyes. This is a message to Israel. And Israel, and we're going to get it a little later on in 1 Peter, how baptism doth save. And we'll probably get that next Sunday morning. And I'll show you what, what way baptism did save those, but it doesn't save us. It saved people in the day when the Lord Jesus Christ, when the Apostle Peter was saying, Repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. That's not the message of today. Today it is simply believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Baptism is not for today, but we find that back in that day, baptism belonged to the nation of Israel. All right, now, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 1. Just a few more minutes, I guess. We might be able to look at uh, a few verses here. Let's see, verse 1 to 7. We have in verses 1 to 7 instruction for domestic tranquility. That's what I would call it. 
And a lot of homes need a little more tranquility in them, I'm quite sure. You read an awful lot today of how men are battered, I mean husbands are battered, and wives are being battered today, and children are being battered, and I couldn't but notice again in today's Sunday paper the killings, the, the murders, and the suicides. My, we're living in a very bad state, and you know why? Because the message of the gospel is no longer attractive to anybody. We almost have to apologize to people when we say, I hate to tell you, but you are a sinner. You're going to drop into hell if you don't accept Christ as your Savior, but Christ died for you. You can be saved, and all you have to do is accept Christ. And they'll argue with you and say, no, I think there's a lot more to that. You have to be good, and you have to do this and do that and keep the Ten Commandments. And that's not true at all. And therefore, it seems as though there's so much for them to do, they give up and say, oh, why, why not eat, drink, and be merry, and let's have a good time. And that's the wrong way to look at it. Now, I believe that here we have instructions for domestic tranquility. And I believe that only in Christian homes you would expect this to be the norm. I think that in Christian homes you would expect that this would be the way things would go. It says, Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives. Now, first of all, I want to tell you, these wives are the wives of Hebrew men. These are Hebrew wives. Paul is not writing this. Peter is writing this. If Paul wrote it, it would be to the church, the body of Christ. This is not written to the church, the body of Christ. So be careful as to how you translate it. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any, obey not the word. In other words, there was a possibility of some of those wives who were living out in Cappadocia, Asian, Bithynia, and these Gentile countries, away and out of Judea where they really belonged, but they went there because of the awful heel of oppression of the Roman Empire, and they were subject to Rome at that particular time, and because they sought a little... Uh, they wanted to get away from the oppression of the rule of, of the king. Uh, they went out into these other Gentile countries. Now, some of these young ladies apparently had accepted Christ. They were baptized. They repented and were baptized. And they were saved, but their husbands didn't agree with it. And so their husbands remained unsaved. And so here we find that the best way to reach that husband is this, by having a proper attitude to him. Now, he's not going to like that you believe in the Christ. He hates the Christ. He says that Christ was an imposter. He says that Christ was nothing else but a Jew who was born illegitimately of two people who were single, and they came together unmarried and produced this child. Well, we have a lot of that sort of thing in the world today, but that's not how the Lord Jesus was born. And you can imagine an unconverted Jewish husband who did not accept the Christhood of Christ, how that he would hate his wife and try to subject her to a lot of shame and ignominy simply because she was a Christian, that is, she didn't believe in the Christian message as we believe the message today, but she believed in Christ as the one who they had taken and crucified and slain and who is made both Lord and Christ by virtue of his resurrection, and he was promised to come to be their king, and she believed that. And her faith and confidence was in Christ as the hope of the nation of Israel. But she did, did she dare talk to her husband after that fashion? No, I think she got slapped down too many times. And she learned better than to try to preach to him all the time. 
You have a lot of women in the world today who are Christians. They've stopped preaching to their husbands because they feel like preaching is not going to reach them. And there are other ways of reaching them, and that is our conduct can do an awful lot to it. It is the way we appear before him, and there's a lot we can do to get his ear in another way. And so it says, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. Uh, well, let me read verse 1 again. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, now if they are not obedient to the word by which they could be saved, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives. Now the word for conversation is the word conduct, behavior. It doesn't mean to talk as we use the word conversation today. It has to do with conduct and behavior. While they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. So when they see how you behave yourself as a wife of a man who is not saved and hates the name of Christ, it will be possible that he will be converted because he watches your conduct. You're not ramming it down his throat all the time, but you are behaving yourself in a way that bespeaks the fact that uh, something has happened to that person. There's been a change of life there. Whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible. Now, a lot of people have gone so far because this is generally uh, spoken of the church, mind you, when it should be spoken of in its proper context. It's to the Hebrew people back in Peter's day. It, during the Acts period, and we find that a lot of people today, I knew a man, and I preached with that man for a while, who didn't even wear a gold uh, finger band for his, his wedding ring. He didn't wear anything that was uh, a piece of jewelry in any way, shape, or form. This is not telling you that Christians can't wear jewelry. A lot of people have tried to interpret this out of it, but it's only telling these ladies now, it's all right if you want to wear jewelry. It's all right if you want to put your hair up so that it's presentable to the community. But don't think that that is the, the center of your, of your adorning. It is adorning. It is the way you ought to be before your husband and before your community, you see. I feel sorry for a lot of husbands who have, put, who have to put themselves up to wives who don't care how they look at any time. And I think that's a shame, especially if they profess to be Christian and he's a believer. I believe that we should be careful about how we appear. And the nicer we can be dressed, the better it is. Uh, that is, community-wise, because in some communities, if you're overly dressed, <laughs> you'll be just like a sore thumb sticking out there. But uh, So you act according to the community and according to the way people are going in your particular place. But don't be the poorest dressed. Don't be uh, so that you are going to be ashamed of by your spouse. That's what it's talking about. But there is an adorning that's better than this adorning of gold and silver and of plating the hair. And that is a meek and quiet spirit. Have a good attitude toward your husband. And I should say, if, if, if it's a husband that should have the good attitude toward the wife, uh, we should bring that in. This is not only for wives because it's all for, also for husbands. It says in verse 7, Likewise ye husbands dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel. That is in the case that the wife is not a convert. Don't be one that the wife is going to be ashamed of if you come out into the public and go to the corner store and my, what a mess you look. Oh, that's so-and-so's husband. Well, she always looks so nice. I can't understand him. 
always looking so poor and so on, you know. And I think both ought to do the very best they can to make a good appearance before each other. Not to win somebody else's heart, but to make themselves appeal to their own spouses. And what is the uh, kind of dress? What is it that we are to look forward to? Uh, what is it that we would call adorning? It is the adorning of the inward man. It is what we are in Christ that we should consider. And when we create that uh, vision and appearance and permit the outer, the new man, the inner man to come out in all of its loveliness and all of its grace and all of its beauty, I think uh, there is the possibility, not always, I'm not promising but there is a better possibility of some of these people being reached and saved. All right, that's what you have in the first seven verses. Now, I want to say something about verse seven. We often talk about the women being the weaker vessel. Now, I believe that's true. I believe that's true. I hate to see a woman get into government. Honestly, I do. But on the other hand, I want to say this verse not only says the woman is the weaker vessel, but it also says the man is the weak vessel because if she's weaker, then he is weak too. Only she is a little weaker than he is. I realize I've got a weakness and there isn't a man in the world that's not weak in some way, shape, or form. I have to depend upon prayer and upon fellowship with God, with the Lord Jesus Christ in order to preach uh, according to the Holy Spirit. I've got I've got a weakness in me that calls and cries out for an outward strength, a strength that comes from the outside. And that comes to us through the Holy Spirit as Christ is projected before us and brought to us uh, out of the Word of God. We are all weak, but there is a fact. Now, this is what the Bible says. Let's not frown on the Scripture. The woman is a weaker vessel, but it doesn't say that the man is strong. It says he is weak, but she is weaker. And I'm all for that. There are some things in which my wife is stronger than I, but there are other things in which I might be stronger than her. I don't know, but we shouldn't play on that strength at all. We shouldn't play on it at all. You know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and with this we'll have to close, our time is up. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we recognize that there are three headships. And of course, since this is written by the Apostle Paul, I only expect that believers in Christ will accept this, and I think believers should accept it. Because it's very plainly stated there. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 3. But I would have you to know that the head of every man is Christ. Now who's my head? Christ. That's what the Bible says. I believe the Bible. Now a lot of people are not going to tell me this. They say that's hogwash. But it's not hogwash. This is divine inspiration. It says I would have you to know that the head of every man is Christ. And the head of the woman is what? The man. Now, you want me to change that? I don't think it's fair to change divine inspiration. We're playing with scripture. It says the head of every woman is the man. And the head of Christ is God. Now, if the Lord Jesus is willing to subject himself to a headship, which is his father, why should I not subject myself to a headship, which is Christ? And why should not my wife subject herself to her headship, which is me? So there can be perfect harmony and sympathy between three parties. You see, the husband and the wife, the person of Christ, and all find our subjection in God himself according to these particular plateaus of headship. Now this is what God says in his word. 
I won't read the rest of the scripture because I think some of this is passé. Some of it belongs with the, uh, with the early chapters of the book of Acts, the, er, the balance of the book of Acts. And some of these are not applicable today since the Apostle Paul has given the finished word of God and the completer revelation. But in that verse, I think this is very important, but I would have you to know that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is the man and the head of Christ is God. You're doing your husband a big favor by acknowledging your head, headship. I am doing Christ a big favor by acknowledging my headship. And Christ, we, we want to, don't, talk, don't want to talk about him doing a big favor because it's all grace with him. He is perfectly subject to his father. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that lovely uh, resurrection chapter, we have the fact that this day is coming when the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be subject even to him who has put all things under his feet. So much for tonight. I hope this little explanation of this trespass offering and the sin offering has helped you. I thank God for every infant that's ever died. Oh, you say, how can you say that? I've got a little one I've seen buried in the grave so many years ago, and I still have memories of that. All right, they're blessed memories. Even the woman that buried that child who is still, and she might still be unsaved, she can be thankful, of course, she'll never have the insight into this, but we can be thankful for her that her child will not go where she is if she continues to live in an unbelieving manner and refuses to re receive Christ as personal Savior. Isn't it nice to know that that marvelous provision has been made for those innocent individuals, regardless of what their background may be? May the Lord bless his word tonight to us. What is there then left for us to do in order to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. It's the promise of God. May the Lord bless you tonight.